0: If Argyle had supported the regicide, he was in the distinct minority in Scotland. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsalva, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. When news of the event reached Scotland, it was seen as proof that the English independents were heretics, and it was also proof of Scotland's status in relation to Parliamentary England. Both the Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant had emphasized the importance of the King, and Charles was Scotland's King independently of being England's. Yet, when Scottish commissioners protested the execution and refused to join with England as a Federal Republic, they were arrested and sent back to Scotland. At this point, Hamilton was also tried and executed by the English government. We've covered the regicide from a lot of different perspectives at this point, but I would venture a guess that it was worst of all for Scotland. Not only was this a heretical act among a deeply religious people, and not only was it the destruction of a part of their government without their consent, it was also a clear message that they had no real place in the coming order. The Solemn League and Covenant was supposed to be an alliance, but it looked a whole lot more like Scotland helping win the pivotal battle of the war and then being swept aside when internal problems meant that they were no longer useful. Public outcry threatened to tear the Covenanter government apart. Royalists put the blame squarely on the Covenanters. They had given the King to Parliament after all. People who had supported the Covenanters during the Bishops' Wars and then during Montrose's campaigns, and even during Hamilton's invasion of England, now adopted Montrose's position en masse, and they demanded justice. Regardless of what Argyll and the Kirk party wanted to do, they had no choice. Within days of the regicide, they proclaimed the exiled Prince Charles as King Charles II of Scotland, England, and Ireland, and Parliament acknowledged him. And this is how the event which has been called the Third English Civil War and more accurately, the English invasion of Scotland, came about. It takes us firmly into the period known as the Interregnum, or the English Republic, and a step beyond anything we've previously discussed in this podcast. And it's this event which would most infamously see thousands of Scottish prisoners transported to the New World. Argyle and the Kirk's priorities hadn't changed, and while they proclaimed the new king, they demanded that he agree to the covenant before he be allowed to take power. This would mean accepting permanent Presbyterianism in all three kingdoms, and it would also mean that he couldn't pass anything that Parliament disagreed with. They even demanded that royalists and engagers be excluded both from government and from court. Royalists and engagers who were still in Scotland revolted in favor of an unconditional accession of the new king, but the Kirk party quashed that hard. If Charles II wanted to take power in the only kingdom which would accept him, he would have to do it on their conditions, and that meant taking the covenant. In exile with the king, Montrose had a different idea. If Charles II returned to Scotland with a military force, he could restore his government with no caveats. Exiled engagers disagreed, saying that Charles needed to accept Argyle's offer as a resource that was now at his disposal. He couldn't actually afford to turn his back on a kingdom which was willing to invite him peacefully and that might be a stepping stone to retaking England. They even went so far as to blame Montrose's campaign for all the problems that Scotland was now facing. The two factions would barely speak to each other, but the king used ideas from both. He hedged his bets and tried to negotiate with the Covenanters, while simultaneously asking Montrose to secretly start preparing for war. Soon. Montrose headed to Orkney with 600 German soldiers, commanded by Scottish exiles and supplied by Denmark and Sweden. In Orkney, he recruited about 800 more, but it wasn't a great trip. The islanders were terrified by the stories that they'd heard about Montrose. Remember, this is the first war to see widespread use of propaganda, and even when they agreed to fight, they were Thoroughly inexperienced soldiers. And when the Scottish government heard news of his arrival, they didn't just prepare, they over prepared. They gathered an army of 4,300 people, complete with a cavalry, to meet Montrose's 1,200 foot soldiers. It didn't take much more than the sight of Leslie's army for the Germans to decide that the fight wasn't worth the effort, and the islanders to scatter in terror. And perhaps poetically, Montrose now ended the war in the way that he'd begun it, alone, in peasant garb, hiding in the Scottish Highlands after being deserted by his army. He went to Ardbrecht Castle to take refuge with an old friend, but either the man or his wife told Leslie where he was. He was captured, arrested, tied to a wooden cart, and paraded across Scotland in his peasant's clothes. Some towns celebrated his humiliation, some showed their royalist sympathies, and others just showed sympathy. In Dundee in particular, the people replaced his humble garb with clothes befitting his status, and ensured that he had accommodation which reflected his rank as well. Even in Edinburgh, reception was mixed. His captors encouraged people to shout, jeer, and throw things at this most dangerous of traitors, and they did for a while. He was calm though, and he maintained his dignified composure until the jeers started to be replaced by curiosity and prayer. Having been excommunicated, he was taken to the common jail, and then to court only long enough for the years-old sentence of death under the Bill of Attainder to be read. He was sentenced to be hanged as a common criminal, and the parts of his body not mounted in Scotland's major cities, to be buried in the common criminal's graveyard." Through all of this, the only thing that seemed to provoke an emotional response from Montrose was the accusation that he had violated the covenant in his actions. The Scottish government demanded that Charles annul his commission to Montrose, allowing his execution. The new king agreed, and his fate was sealed. Montrose refused the Kirk's push for him to acknowledge his wrongs, and he stubbornly maintained the same position he had held throughout the wars. He believed in the covenant, but he couldn't support any more actions against the king's authority. He was prouder, he said, to have his head affixed to the walls of the prison than his picture placed in the king's bedchamber and far from being troubled that my limbs are to be sent to your principal towns, I wish that I had flesh enough to be dispersed throughout Christendom to attest my dying attachment to my king. The next day he was taken to the scaffold, and his executioner hung an account of his exploits around his neck, to which he responded that he wore that with more pride than he had the garter. He wasn't allowed any form of a last speech because that would have been exceptionally dangerous. When he had fought, he had fought in a country that largely disagreed with him. But now, that same country was almost unanimously on his side. A last speech could have solidified all of those feelings while making him a martyr. He prayed, spoke with those around him, and then ascended the scaffold and gave his final words. God have mercy on this afflicted land. At the same age as McCullough, Montrose was executed, and his officers followed, but the damage had been done to the Kirk party's cause, as well as to Charles Second. Charles now went to Scotland, under the terms that he'd agreed to, and he and the government joined forces and prepared for the inevitable war which would follow. The Kirk still didn't want to fight for the king or against Cromwell, and this prompted the last split of the Covenanters, in which Argyle himself shifted his allegiance. There were still people who sided with the Kirk, mostly in the western counties around Glasgow, but at the point where the Kirk had lost Argyle, they'd lost just about everyone and Charles's faction started recruiting soldiers. At this point, though, we need to step back and realize who these people were. After countless years of wars, drafts, raids, attacks, and faction fighting, who do you think was left? Not Montrose's soldiers. They'd been killed long ago. Not Argyle's. They'd been killed, too, as had a huge percent of Leslie's. Who was left. Inexperienced people, mostly kids, terrified teens and preteens who had been living in a war-torn country for as long as they could remember, and one which had been experiencing hunger and bouts of starvation since before they were born. An army, as one colonel described them, of nothing but useless clerks and ministers' sons who had never seen a sword much less used one. And few of these people would ever see their homes again. Cromwell arrived in Scotland three weeks later. And when he arrived, he found a wasteland. To slow his approach, the Scots had removed every person, every bit of food, every bit of equipment, every animal that he might get access to. Anything that they couldn't take with them was destroyed. And in Edinburgh, the wasteland ended in a series of trenches and fortifications guarded by a massive army led by Leslie. After weeks of being completely unable to do anything, Cromwell was running out of supplies, so he withdrew to a herring port called Dunbar, where he hoped that he might intercept some Scottish supplies and simultaneously force Leslie to attack out in the open where he would be vulnerable. Leslie prepared his attack and took the high ground, and at this point the Kirk did to him exactly what they'd done to Bailey at the Battle of Kilsith against Montrose. They ordered him to rearrange his army right there in front of Cromwell to give up the high ground and to attack immediately. And just like Montrose had years before, Cromwell watched, attacked, and obliterated Leslie's army while it was totally incapacitated. Most soldiers dispersed, and the two regiments which held their ground were wiped out completely. Three thousand people died on the field, thousands more left with soon-to-be-fatal injuries, and five thousand were taken prisoner. The ones who were left to try to find their way home struggled to deal with the sheer number of horrifyingly injured people who were with them. The prisoners were marched without food for days and camped in a series of makeshift prisons. The most recognizable of these today is Annick Castle, home of the Percy family that we've talked so much about and the castle, which appears as Hogwarts in the Harry Potter movies. So if you see some of those outdoor scenes, they were filmed in places where these prisoners would have been housed. They were so starved that when they found cabbages one day, the ones who ate them died. Then dysentery set in, and Hazelrigg realized that they might all die, so he started feeding them. But the sudden burst of food killed even more. Every English colony needed labor desperately after the Civil Wars had depleted the supply of indentured servants on which they had so heavily relied. Half of the prisoners had died on the journey, and the ones who survived were dispersed among the colonies. Back in Scotland, though, Cromwell was marching to Edinburgh. Leslie was desperately working to raise a whole new army And no one was going to be excluded this time. Engagers, defectors, whatever, even Catholics, it didn't matter. Scotland was desperate. The Western counties still wouldn't participate, withholding soldiers and planning to capture Charles and give him to Cromwell. Charles escaped this plot and was finally crowned king, by Argyle of all people. His friends were readmitted to Parliament, and the people who opposed him were taken off of Scotland's standing council, known as the Committee of Estates. Scotland could only muster enough for one last stand. The new King Charles assumed command in person, and the new Marquis of Hamilton joined him, as did Leslie. They boosted their numbers with drafts in each county, the rawest of raw recruits. The line of defense that Leslie had organized was strong, and Cromwell searched for a weak point for six weeks. Finally, he took some places in Fife, and this success caused some desertions. Charles decided that it was time that they had to go on the offense, though Argyle disagreed and went home. The English West Country was still devoted to the royal cause, so by going there, Perhaps he could join forces with English royalists and topple Cromwell's government for good. He took his army of 18,000 southwest toward Worcester. The royalists and Presbyterians in England had been devastated beyond the point of fighting back, though, and even if they'd been given time to prepare, they couldn't really. Cromwell left a Scottish general named Monk in charge of 7,000 troops to finish taking over Scotland, and he followed Charles' army to England. After Monk made an example of Dundee, massacring its garrison after they resisted, the rest of Scotland surrendered quickly. By the time they met, Cromwell and Charles each had armies of about 18,000, But while Charles's was full of the last people Scotland could offer, fighting their first battle ever, who were now, in addition to that, far away from home and absolutely exhausted, Cromwell's was full of veterans who had been fighting together for years at this point. The battle was five long, bloody hours 5,000 people were killed, Leslie and other commanders were captured and sent to the Tower of London, New Hamilton was mortally wounded, and Charles himself barely managed to escape. His journey to the coast and back into exile has become the stuff of legend, a 45-day journey in disguise, hiding in the woods and old priesthoods, trying both to find a ship which would take him abroad and to keep from being captured with a massive price on his head. In one instance, he passed right through a parliamentary army line, and in perhaps the most famous story of all, he hid in an old oak tree just feet above parliamentary soldiers who were searching for him. After dismissing the people who were too injured to keep fighting, Cromwell ended up with 10,000 Scottish prisoners, and again, the fraction who survived the journey were sent to the colonies, never to return. 1,500 were shipped to the gold mines in Africa, and the others were sent to New England and the West Indies. They were kept out of colonies where mutual dissatisfaction might cause problems, and New England was a priority destination as a reward for their loyalty to Cromwell's cause. Because of the threat of Virginia's royalism, the group which was supposed to be sent there was redirected, but most other colonies ended up with some. These people never saw Scotland again. Even today, connecting them to their families or even their regions of origin within Scotland is almost impossibly difficult. They were suddenly involuntarily and permanently Americans. Even when they finished their terms of indenture, they had to pay their own voyage back, which few could afford. So instead, they made their lives in the New World. And there were struggles. In New England, they were treated more dishonestly than the average indentured servant, with some being tricked into serving twice the time that they were supposed to and when they stayed in towns like Boston, they were treated distinctly like second-class citizens. They also clashed frequently with authorities there, with strong beliefs and opinions that contrasted with those of New England's congregational leadership. The ones in the West Indies were treated worse. Sugar was a notoriously taxing crop to work with, and conditions for indentured servants were declining limited land, forced people to work multiple terms of indenture, and life was pretty bleak for years, if not decades. But plenty ultimately moved around, and some did pretty well for themselves. Those in New England formed a settlement in Maine, and some went south, even to Virginia, which was a decently common practice among people who didn't fit in With the direction that New England was taking. Others went to Rhode Island. They had the skills, more than most of the English settlers, to survive in wilderness areas. And they did. All over the New World, as their indentures ended, at least some emerged as successful landowners, farmers, and businessmen. It's hard to fathom what these people went through. Transportation was a complete novelty at this point in time. The idea that you could walk out of your house one day and never be able to return home was a real possibility. It's true that in this particular case we're talking about a couple of battles, but for these people, the battle was just the beginning of their struggles. It wasn't a matter of dying versus surviving and returning home which was usually the case if you were a commoner. Suddenly, these kids had fought this battle and they were swept into a life which got more and more foreign and terrifying. From a farm, to an army, to a battle, to prison, to prison, to prison, to a ship, to a different continent. And as for Scotland, it was no longer a country. Monk was left at the head of a military government with an English administration that included Henry Vane, and it was taxed heavily to pay for its own military occupation. England boasted that Cromwell had achieved what not even the Romans had been able to. The Kirk was pushed aside, its general assembly broken up by force in Edinburgh, and Scotland was forced to accept English-style independence within its borders. Anyone who refused to accept the English government was disenfranchised and refused any government protection. Argyle now tried to join forces with old royalists for a new rebellion, but they refused, and he submitted to Monk too. Scotland would have no parliament, but instead be given 30 seats on the English one, which were in practice largely filled by English people. Just like in England, transportation loomed as an ever-present threat to those who opposed the government, and more Scots would join the POWs as time went on. Scotland now faced a more extreme version of every problem which had pushed it to revolt in the first place.